the piece that we just heard at the top of the programme there must be more crispy. Uh, it's more a blend of what we might call world music. Now, it was a piece co-composed with a good friend and deep musical colleague of mine, Mel Mercier. And in actual fact, it's based on South Indian drum rhythms. It started as a rhythmic composition of his, which he gave to me, and then this music I put on top of it. from um, exceptions like that these are exceptions that prove the rule and it's absolutely true I think throughout my recording career my first record I brought out in 1975 at the age of 25 with Gwe Ling um, uh, Irish tr traditional music has always been a central thread running through it all and it still is I think grew up in Clanmel. My parents ran a, a grocery shop there in the middle of the town and uh, I had one brother, John, who was a year older than me, so two boys growing up in the centre of Clanmel, which historically, of course, is a garrison town. But my mother, who was the daughter of a farmer nearby Feathert, she had come in and had inherited this grocery shop from her aunt, who was a spinster aunt. My father was a, a soldier in the army and he was uh, from Mount Millick, originally in the Midlands came from a very large family. They married and we were born. Now, there were no musical instruments in the house, no, no, no gramophone, no, no, no sign of music particularly. But what I do remember, both my parents are dead now, is that I now know, in retrospect, that my father was very musical. Now, he didn't know that. If you asked him, was he a musician, he'd say no. If you asked him, was he a singer, he'd say no. So he didn't put words on it, but he would on occasion sing, or if a mouth organ came into his hands, he'd play it. Now, what way would he play it? He'd play traditional tunes on it. He'd play the blackboard. He could lilt. He could sing in a traditional style. And even though I heard very, very little of it, uh, I find it impossible to believe that something very deep didn't pass, particularly on that side of the family, into who I am musically. A very earliest memory is playing one of those uh, Chinese toy pianos, you know, the ones with the black notes painted on. And I remember being under something, under a table or something, and I still remember the tune I was playing. I was trying to pick out Silent Night, Holy Night. And I remember discovering that if you skipped one of the keys and you played then these two keys together, that you got a very sweet sound. And it worked most of the time, but not always. You know, so I had discovered uh, myself, very proud of it, uh, the, the, the concept of the harmonic sweetness of, of, of the major and minor third. Later on, my mother was a great supporter of that uh, artistic side of me. And she, I think, recognised it as something special, as something important to, to cultivate. So I started to study piano. Uh, with with uh, actually one of the uh, customers in the shop, and Mrs. Morris, who lived just 20 yards up the road. And so I made my dutiful half-hour pilgrimage each week up to, to study piano with her. What I didn't know was that she was a closet Cayley Band jazz piano vamper. And, you know, it's interesting that that's not something you'd hang up on the door then outside your studio. It's something you might put in now, in fact, with, you know, say I played in the Kilfenori Cayley Band or the Schlieve Laval Cayley Band. But at that time, in order to make a living, in order to have any status, you had to emphasise the fact that you had grade six or something from the Associated Board or whatever. 
It was all very, very strange to me. No one in my family had ever gone to university before, so there was all of that kind of cultural and educational massive shock for me. So when I finally got over it, I discovered myself between the twin poles, in a way, of Fleischmann on the one hand and Orieta on the other. And in many ways, they were, even though I didn't realise it fully at the time, they were like chalk and cheese. And I found myself between two cultural electricity nodes which only later in my life I realised what a unique position those of us who were there, not least myself, who was picking up on the energy from these two extraordinary people. Now, Oriada in 1963, then, as a national figure, was in the music department, so Irish traditional music had a very, very special... There was a, there was a space around it, a kind of uh, an aura around the subject and around him. So when I came in 69, the door was open. The door was already open. Oriada reacted quite, um, I suppose, really arrogantly now, in retrospect, to, to the Cayley Band sound. And I remember myself having to go through all my 20s and nearly into my 30s before realising that I'd picked up a kind of a negative attitude to that sound because it's a dance band, the Cayley band at its best is a dance band. It's not really something just to be listened to. Um, but O'Reilly wanted to reinvent the whole notion of traditional music in an ensemble setting. And he was cued enough and clued enough into the music to know that at its highest point, it's solo. You know, so you can have a solo fiddler, a solo singer, just a piper on his or her own, and there isn't anything missing. There isn't anything missing, absolutely nothing missing. Um, it's 100% of the sound. So if it is 100% of the sound, how can you actually build on that? And his approach in Kjoltori Kulin, which was later taken on uh, and developed so well by the chieftains, of course, was to create spaces in the arrangements and to move around, in a way, the macro blocks of the music rather than the micro blocks. And I think part of his frustration, of course, was that in doing that, he was allowing space for the creativity of other people, but not for himself. As a composer, you know, the, the notion of composition or composing in traditional music is not really relevant. The creative process is in the hands of the performer, not the composer. And you make your name in that music, not by writing tunes, 
but by playing tunes that are already written in your own way. It's a bit like jazz. Uh, but O'Reilly was coming to that then with a great desire out of Western art tradition. But he was, you know, he was a great mediational, cultural mediational bridge, you know. He was a kind of a limnus type, a liminal type figure. And I think people who are uh, purveyors, in a way, of cross-energies between different cultural or psychological centres in people or in a community... Uh, are in a very special place and sometimes in a very dangerous place. I wouldn't ever, I think, have had the idea or the confidence, I think, to play traditional music or develop an, uh, to develop an Irish traditional piano-style sound, which people say I have done, without having heard O'Reilly actually do it. We created uh, a group of us in Cork, uh, a degree course, a BA stroke BMOS course, which could allow traditional musicians and classical musicians equal access to a shared curriculum. And that's the key. Uh, strangely enough, over the years, the resistance has come sometimes from within the classical music community, but very often not. It would have come from academics in the system who really wouldn't understand what music was. You'd come up against things like, well, why would you be introducing traditional music into the university curriculum? Wasn't it always good enough where it was? And why would you bring it in? Surely you're going to ruin it if you bring it into uh, a school system like that. On the traditional side of the equation, you sometimes would get the same argument, interestingly enough. You know, we never needed universities, we never needed school, we never needed this, we're fine as we are. And I think the important thing is that there is a validity, there is a valid fear in that point of view, you say, because school isn't necessarily always a good thing. The advantages in Limerick was Limerick was a young, um, I was going to say a snappy university, but it was certainly young and light on its feet and... Uh, you know, mad for new ideas, you know, and to compete with the older established universities. So when I, when I went there, I walked into really the central arena, which was quite unusual for a musician. Uh, you know, in a university situation, you're normally, uh, music departments are relegated to the periphery of academic life. And there's a sense that you're kind of lucky to be there at all. Uh, and particularly if you introduce any concept which is non-verbal, like honouring performance as performance. All kinds of problems come up. Because, like, are you actually going to give a degree to somebody who can't spell, you know, or who can't count, but who is an international standard performer on cello? And can you do that? Can you honour that? And should universities be about that? Or should actually be that be taken care of by the conservatoire or academy down the road? These are the issues, actually, that are central to that journey. So I think the great challenge now is how do we access our own cultures, whether, you know, regardless of where we're from, Africa, Asia, South America, Ireland, Europe, how do we access our own cultures within the context of that global awareness of different sounds? And that would be the exciting arena for me now, including the reinvention of Western classical tradition within the concepts of an emerging, increasingly communicative uh, world cultural awareness. <laughs> 